ready to unlock your team's full potential. AIM HR Solutions, rooted in the heart of Massachusetts, brings you tailored coaching and talent development services designed to elevate your business. With our personalized approach, you're not just investing in HR services, you're investing in the growth of yourself and your team. Discover the power of personalized coaching at AIM HR Solutions. Head to aimhrsolutions.com to learn more and start your journey toward success today. Welcome to Human Solutions, simplifying HR for people who love HR from AIM HR Solutions on True Story FM. I'm Pete Wright. For HR professionals, navigating the intricacies of substance abuse in the workplace is both urgent and complex. With a significant number of workers believing in employer support for substance use management and widespread misconceptions about addiction treatments, HR faces the challenge of balancing employee well-being with organizational needs. This week, AIM's own Lori Burgoyne and Tom Jones joined me to delve deep into this complex issue, highlighting the real-world scenarios HR must grapple with, the legal implications, and the critical role they play in addressing and managing substance use challenges in the modern workplace. Lori and Tom, welcome back. It is so good to see you both today. And I am delighted to be talking to you about a complex issue and one that I think we're on a, a wave of change right now. And I wonder if we could set the table a little bit for this conversation about what it is we're talking about when we're talking about substance abuse at work. Thanks, Pete, for having us. What I first think of substance abuse in the workplace, I think about the changing landscape of our world and our country in terms of uh, since the pandemic, there has been a large increase in overdose deaths in the state of Massachusetts countrywide, as well as um, an increase in drug usage and mental health concerns since the pandemic. Anything that affects the country as a whole affects the workplace, of course, because a workplace is just a group of people. Um, in addition, there have been many states that have legalized cannabis and it has impacted the workplace and pre-hire drug testing and so on and so forth. So there are changes and differences that have come into play in the last few years. You know, you bring up cannabis, which is today something that has we, we have, you know, very strong feelings and a lot of money invested in cannabis and, and in, in the cannabis industry. And that has changed culturally and sort of it, it feels like it's moved categories. But what has replaced it is incredibly damaging, right? What we're seeing in terms of the opioid uh, uh, epidemic seems like that's something that is even more significant perhaps. Uh, and, and I'm curious what HR's take is on how it is being received at work. I think more and more companies are getting dragged into this issue as more, you know, as employers struggle to find workers. One of the challenging issues they find is that people who may have been at perhaps at the margins of the society previously, you know, these substance abuse folks or in other difficult situations, are now being brought into the workplace. And so a lot of companies, and not just that, it's always existing employees who, for whatever reason, maybe a, a personal pain issue, a worker's comp injury, some other reason, have moved into the world of using, you know, heavy-duty drugs such as the opioids. 
And so employers have to cope with that, trying to see if they can keep them working, try to see when's the appropriate time to you know, get someone into a rehab program, when's the appropriate time to terminate somebody, put them on a disciplinary program. And so HR has got this extra level of responsibility that I think has really manifested itself post-pandemic to, you know, has come force companies to think, oh my gosh, what am I going to do to hold on to these folks or to keep, you know, to get rid of them, whichever might be the appropriate course of action. And they're really struggling over that. Tom, I mean, you, you bring up a great point, and it feels to me like the the friction that exists there for HR is, look, we know that there is a, a continuum of, of substance use, misuse, abuse, and also privacy, right? right? In terms of HR, how do we know when to step in when uh, an employee you know, needs it most, when we can be most effective, and when we are not violating some sort of agreement to privacy? Yeah, it's t- difficult. I mean, every state's going to have their own privacy laws as to how far they can, an employer may be able to get involved with someone. But I think if it's going, the criteria an HR professional could use would be, is it disrupting the employee's performance at work? Are they missing deadlines? Are they not coming to work on time? Are they, you know, taking days off excessively? Are they missing Mondays and Fridays a great deal? Are there sort of objective criteria you can look to and say, okay, this employee has changed from what they previously were. We can no longer accept that. We have to do something about it. But it does mean that HR and the the direct supervisor for that employee are going to have to be very alert to what's going on with that person's life in the workplace. Because as Laurie said earlier, you know, people's, uh, our people in the workplace, they just come in from outside world. They have all that anxiety, all that stress, all that, you know, substance use, whatever it might be, and they're bringing that into the workplace. Lori, how well equipped is HR to be uh, responsive and aware to the degree that Tom's talking about? Well, I mean, it can be very heartbreaking. I mean, these are your employees. These are the people you know. And um, if they have an abuse, substance abuse problem, drinking too much, you know, even all the way to having an addiction of fentanyl, which is a synthetic uh, opioid um, how can we help that person is the first thing. Uh, what resources do we have to help that person? Do we have an employee assistance program? Many employees do, many don't. An employee assistance program can help employees with education, helping them find resources for treatment. Um, human resources can also help an employee who's seeking treatment um, with what the health insurance covers. What are the facilities that are available to them? And, you know, while it can lead to discipline if they do not seek treatment and they don't get better and they're not showing up for work or they're disrupting the organization, then there are things called a last chance agreement where you could say to an employee, hey, we think you're great. We want to keep you here, but you have to get clean. And here are some resources, here's some time off maybe, you know, and Tom, we can go into the availability of time off and we're going to give you a shot and hopefully you can get clean because we'd love to have you back. Yeah. And I think the other, another thing that companies have started to face up to the fact is that they may have to have changed their culture. If the culture were one, at one point uh, maybe more focused on getting product out the door, there now has to be more of a culture perhaps of empathy. For some folks to try and hold on to them, you know, to give them up op- that opportunity to 
A, admit that they're struggling and B, get a remedy in place. You know, the, what Laurie just talked about, the package of options, you know, and a good employee assistance program will make a real difference, could make a real difference in someone's life. Uh, well, I, I, that gets to a, a really interesting question. Uh, when one needs help, that seems to be the wave that we're counting on a work program to help give us help, you know, help in this area for any number of reasons. I, I guess the question is, what is the overall employer responsibility to help employees get clean? In Massachusetts, we're starting to see, and some other states, not just Massachusetts, some other states as well, we're starting to see the emergence of state-based leaves of absence laws. And they will typically provide job-protected leave for X number of weeks for somebody to check themselves into a rehabilitation program. You know, in Massachusetts, it's up to 20 weeks. Other states have different laws. I mean, Connecticut, New York, Washington, California, Oregon, all have different laws that may offer different timeframes. But the principle is basically the same, that you're giving someone time off with job-protected leave to go out and see if they can get themselves um, recovered back to where they were previously. So they're starting to see that emergence around the country. Though on the federal level, the Family and Medical Leave Law, which has existed since 1993, offered similar benefits, but just didn't offer pay. That's been, the, that's been the big change in the last few years is that all these state leave laws offer some form of compensation, you know, if maybe not 100% partial wage replacement so that that gives the person a little bit less stress but it does put an obligation on the company to hold that job for a period of time. Laurie, what are the complications internally for holding jobs for people who are out for substance abuse treatment? Well, I mean, there are jobs that need to get done. So, you know, on a temporary basis, employers can fill a job with overtime or moving somebody else into the job for a certain amount of time. Um, but it's likely worthwhile if this employee can recover and come back as a functioning person within the organization, um, recruitment and retention is basically job one right now. The job market is very, very tough. So if you have a great employee, um, you know, putting the, the effort into helping that person to recover and get better on the right road um, and having a job back for them is essential. And there are also laws about having a job back for them. So under the FMLA for employers that have 50 plus employees and under the PFML Massachusetts, we hold their job um, for mm -hmm. a certain period of time and so that they can come back to the same or similar job. We also have the Americans with Disabilities Act that can we accommodate them um, coming back to a position with any disability that they may have. We so we're talking right now about I you know I'll, I'll generalize and say we're talking about existing employees that are struggling with substance abuse. But one of you said earlier on uh, this recruitment issue is non-trivial and drug testing for employee onboarding is standard in a lot of places. What has been the change, if any, in onboarding for substance abuse um, when recruiting, as you say, Lori, in a really complicated job market? I mean, two, a couple of things we're seeing change. One is that some companies that previously did testing for drug and alcohol have dropped it. They've had so much difficulty recruiting and retaining people that they've dropped the testing across the board. 
Another one is that they have cherry picked out what the items are they test for. So for example, cannabis has been removed or THC has been removed from many drug tests pre-employment. And companies are kind of rolling the dice and saying that, you know, is this person going to be a problem when we get them? We're not sure. But then they weren't sure with alcohol either, and they didn't maybe test for alcohol, and they, you, know, you can't test the same way. So they're struggling with that, but trying to figure out a way to get people at the same time, you know, maybe not learn as much information and just hope that things will work out. It's a real challenge for a lot of employees. It's a huge challenge. What are the so what are the implications of this? I mean, are you seeing calls coming in that are saying, you know, we removed drug testing and things have gotten harder? Definitely seeing calls that say we've removed drug testing. Companies then struggle with figuring out, well, okay, we we didn't test them up front. Now we found out they are drug using. What do we do about it? And so they're trying to figure out do we tie our hands? And the answer is no. You can still obviously address the employee's performance while working for you. It just you might have been something you would have eliminated up front by testing and then fi- identifying them as a known drug user at the very beginning. They might not have been even hired, but you know you, you're sort of stuck with that now. And there's one other thing sitting out there, which is the workers' compensation laws. Once you hire that person and they begin to work, if they get injured on the job, they may still be eligible for workers' compensation, whether or not there was drugs or alcohol involved. That may be a factor in the litigation process, but it may turn out that they still are eligible for workers' compensation. And employers have sort of boxed themselves in a little bit by not testing up front to, you know, to that situation. There are some employers who may have government <clears throat> contracts or they have commercial licensed drivers, CDL drivers, that must do pre-hire, random, and different types of drug drug testing for the sheer nature of them being a government contractor or have CDL drivers, for example. Um, And so they have no choice but to include THC in their drug panel. It's still illegal federally at this point in time. The other thing is for those employers who take THC out of their panel for drug testing, one of the reasons, in addition to recruitment um, and retention of employees, is that THC stays in your system for around 30 days. So it does not mean if I do a drug test on you right now that you are impaired in any way. So, you know, employers are thinking, is it really worth it for us to terminate somebody or not hire somebody because they test positive for THC. If you do not have drug testing, you could do something like reasonable suspicion um, testing. So if you see somebody, a manager sees somebody who is impaired, uh, smells uh, like alcohol or marijuana, whatever the case may be, stumbling around or, or something like that, they could do a reasonable suspicion test. If they have a policy in place and a practice in place and they have trained managers and that could help to alleviate the issue of, I just want people who are impaired not to be in a safe, who are in a safety sensitive job or not to be tested. That's what my concern mm-hmm. is. And so I'm going to put that practice and policy in place. That has been proven to be pretty effective if done in the right way. Um, what do you think, Tom, of reasonable suspicion? What are you seeing? You see that a lot. But, you know, that's 
for incumbent employees, obviously that may, that's a, a very good way to handle the issue. But it does take strong training because mm-hmm. you don't want people to start who are supervisors be out to get somebody and say, ah, I'll use this as a reason to drive them out. You have to be in good faith determining that, okay, we believe this person is impaired, therefore we're going to test him or her, as we would anybody within the organization, assuming they met the same criteria. So it's just you're using that as an extra tool, and it's a good tool as long as people are well-trained in how to do it. I, I want to get into some scenarios, and w- one of them around the complication of prescriptions for potential challenging substances, right? Uh, how do, When you have somebody on the job who is allowed to be taking these substances, let's say, and an incident occurs on the job, is there a recourse to to that or we just follow the workers' comp laws, we follow the law as stated? Most of the time, you'd want that employee to disclose to the HR person, I'm taking XYZ and it may make me drowsy or it may make me... Um, impact impact me somehow. And so the mm-hmm. company may collectively decide with the employee, okay, you need to take leave of absence because you're going to need to be out for the next six weeks because you've got to get this drug out of your system. And we can't have you operating a machine, a forklift, or, you know, driving a vehicle, whatever it might be. So one way would be to, you're right, people have prescription drugs, hope they disclose it. And I know in a lot of company handbooks, you'll see the handbook say, if an employee is taking a prescription drug, they must disclose it to HR. And then mm-hmm. there's you know, medical certification saying that, yes, this is um, the impact of this drug. No, the person can't work. Or they can work. Maybe they can work remotely, but they can't work in person. Or, so you have to try and figure out what's the appropriate response. It could impact the workers' comp claim because if the, the employer knows about it, and the employee still gets injured, I think it's going to have (coughs) almost no effect on the workers' comp claim. Well, and especially if that employee is in a safety-sensitive job, right? And it's really important, back to Tom's point about training, it's important to let employees know, you know, note that this is our policy. You are in this, you know, you're running this machine with all of these knives. Um, if, If you're ever prescribed a certain prescriptions, or if you have any question, come to HR and let's talk about it. And, you know, at times we can get a release from their physician, just want you to know, here's their job description. This is a pretty um, dangerous job. Are you sure that this person can fulfill this role under this medication? If not, what do we do? Do we do we need to review then in, in that light what it what the current state of illegal use of substances is on the job? Because I think there, you know, when, when I hear people, I'm, I hear a lot of young people, right? I'm, I'm at that point as a parent where I'm surrounded by young people going out and getting jobs. And I, we also live in a, uh, a, a, a cannabis forward place. And so I have people in their 20s saying, I can't, I can't I'm never going to get a job. It's, it's illegal. They're, they're going to blood test me and all of this. But, but there are some specific constraints around what constitutes illegal. And I, I think you can just run them down for me, Tom, right? Well, clearly, um, ones that have been banned under federal law, state law, you know, which would be the opioids, heroin, though marijuana at the federal level, are clearly mm-hmm. ones that may cause a, an applicant or an employee to get into trouble at the workplace you know, mm-hmm. because they may fail the testing regimen. There's, I mean, Laurie may have a better sense of other forms of narcotic 
or alcohol that may be involved from your your experience more in HR? Well, let me just answer it this way. If you do drug testing, let's say, regardless, you do pre-hire, you do, um, you know, post-accident, near miss, and you have a you have a drug testing program, the individual who does your dress, drug testing, an MRO, will look at the results of that drug test. And if they are being tested positive for, let's say, opioids, they will contact the employee um, that has been tested and ask questions. Do you have a prescription for this or no? Um, is it your prescription? And, and different questions to assess, is it illegal or is it legal that they, you know, they're taking this? And um, so the MRO can make that determination for you if you have a drug testing program. There's so many remote employees right now. And when you're remote, your barriers to using while working are reduced. Right. You go mm -hmm. down to the kitchen and there is. I bring your, my vodka to work. You're bailing <laughs> your bailies in, in your coffee. Right. Yep. <laughs> Much easier. <laughs> um, is that a problem or not? At that point, I think you just have to treat it as performance. So if, if Laurie's having the problem and she doesn't, she misses meetings, you know, or she's at a meeting, she's kind of like this, you know, all the time. I think I, I'm going to have to treat it as performance. I, can, I won't be able to, unless she's, I probably have a conversation with her and say, gee, we've observed these things going on at work. Can you have an explanation? And if she gets very defensive and argumentative and says, no, I don't know what's going on. I just say, well, look, we're going to, letting you know we're keeping track of this behavior. And if it continues, then we're going to have to put you on our discipline track. Assuming she never comes to work. If she comes to work, maybe I have a direct mm. conversation with her. Well, that's actually a really good point. Lori, I mean, to that point, it feels like we have rules to address this, to address behavior, right? Maybe it doesn't have to be a substance abuse question at all, even if substances are, are involved in some way, shape or form. Well, if it's a hybrid employee, right, you can, mm -hmm. there is a face-to-face, -face, you can see behaviors in action. Um, but if it's a fully remote person, maybe it's you, the HR person or the manager or both sitting down with that person and saying, hey, what's going on? These are a few things that we're finding. You know, is there something going on in your life? Um, you know, right. our, our, we, we just want to bring it to your attention to help you to get better. What's happening? And you can speak okay. to the behaviors and the performance issues that you're seeing and put a plan forward. At that point in time, the employee may say, you know what? I'm really having a hard time being home all day. You know, I have this problem. And then there we go. Here are some resources available, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. One thing that's very helpful is ex then explaining to the person what that means. So if you say, okay, Pete, there's a program that will help you give you job-protected leave for up to 20 weeks or 10 weeks or whatever it might be. But I want to explain to you, at the end of that time, here's what you have to do in order to come back to work. Because yeah, I've seen people go out and say, oh, that's great. I'll just take six weeks off and then I'll come back. Well, no, the company's going to look for some documentation to show that you're better. Yeah. Well, you're on the path to getting better. You know, you're doing to taking taking the necessary steps. That may mean there's an accommodation in the future, like like giving you time off to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or something like that. But at least there's a plan, mm -hmm. and the employer is going to have the has the right to expect that when the employee comes back to work that there's some clear path for it. Just wasn't six weeks off where they, you know, could stay home. 
you know, the employer is going to want to know that it addresses the issues for why the employee went out. You know, is there was there a program in place? Did it address these issues? The rehab program. You know, is it the person getting treated? Are they starting the path to sobriety, recovery, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. so that they can work? I have a scenario for you, and I think this is an ADA scenario that surprises me. And we'll we'll talk about Lily because I think they ADA talks about Lily. Lily says she's been cocaine free for about three years. She applies for a job that she is qualified to do, and in her enthusiasm. She outs herself that she is uh, she is in recovery for three years from this uh, addiction. The interviewer has options at this point. What happens next? The way I look at it as an HR person is uh, there's no relevance to having that conversation with an employee, with a candidate who is able to fulfill the job responsibilities. Um, she's been clean for three years. What difference does it make at this point in time? Also, under the Americans with Disability ADA, if an individual is not using, then they cannot be um, disqualified from a position um, for for prior drug use. And I think if the HR person were somehow to inadvertently or intentionally pursue that line of comment, they only get themselves further in trouble because they're beginning to go into the area of protected actions on the part of the applicant. You know, the fact, as Laurie said, they're an applicant who no longer has an addiction problem. They had one three years ago. They assuming they can perform the essential functions of the job. The ADA really shouldn't even be involved. It should just be the part of the application process and, you know, make sure is this person qualified to do the job. So if you were to pursue that, and somehow use that information to deny the person the job, then you've walked into an ADA lawsuit, potentially, and it's not one you're going to do well in. It may be a good time to high-five and congratulate her on being three years clean. Great solution. You have options, take the high-five. Always take the (laughs) high-five. So let's talk about complex scenarios. And when I think of a complex scenario, Lori, I'm thinking about complex scenarios that could impact something that uh, something beyond what HR is uh, immediately dealing with, possibly uh, culture, right, the organization. And so when you th- approach a, uh, an employee and you say, hey, we had to do this test because you're in a safety essential uh, role and we have a positive test and that employee comes back to you and says, no, I don't I don't I don't use. As suddenly that creates friction in the organization. How do you handle those sorts of scenarios? Well, I think it's important to ha- for planning, right? So what is our drug policy? How is it mm-hmm. handled? Making sure it's very clear step by step and that employees understand it. And the policy should state that the process that we go through, if we have suspicion or post-accident or whatever we're doing, is that we send you for a drug test. And the drug test is through thus and so, and they will make the assessment if you are positive or negative. We do not. That is not on us. So um, if you do have a positive, this is how we'll handle it. We'll give you a last chance agreement. We'll terminate your employment. We will help you seek treatment, whatever the case may be. If the employee Mm -hmm. at that point says, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not positive. Well, I'm going to have you connect back with the MRO who spoke with you and um, you can work it out with them. But, you know, they are certified. 
drug testing organization, and we are going to use those results for our policy. Have you ever experienced an MRO make the kind of mistake that would cause this sort of friction? Never, never. I think what happens is if if you have a good MRO, a medical review officer, they've already had the conversation with the employee that we found this Is there any reason why we could have found this? I had an example of an employee who tested positive for THC, and it was um, a CDL driver. And the driver of the employee told the MRO, I never um, smoked marijuana. I drive a limo at night. And the people in my limo were smoking, and it must have been secondhand. And the MRO said, that's that's not going to fly. And so it was. And they have government guidelines that they must follow. So it was definitely a positive, sure. unfortunately. Oh, that's that's too bad. It is. Uh, from the perspective of the it limo is. driver, you know, you try stuff, right? I feel, <laughs> you, you know, you, as an HR person, you feel terrible for the employee. But, you know, you hope for the best for them. And um, but. You know, your policies, you have to be consistent in their application with empathy. Most of those excuses such as over, you know, overeating poppy seed bagels or. Like Elaine on Seinfeld. Like Elaine on Seinfeld. Awesome (laughs) pull, Lori. Oh, man. The the studies I've seen on secondhand smoke basically say you have to be sort of kissing that person as they exhale. You know, Mm -hmm. you really have to be close to them. So sitting in the front of a limousine when all these people are in the back. You get the you get the smell in your clothes, and it's no question about that. But that won't get the same impact on your body. It's worth a shot to make that excuse, though, don't you yeah. think? It's, it's worth, worth a, a shot. shot. What do you got to lose? <laughs> but it, it does hurt your credibility, obviously, with HR, because if it turns out that you know the testing regime is good, they're going to look at you and say, "Well, maybe we'd have put given you a last chance agreement, but now if you're going to be so stubborn and adamant." Yeah, you're now you're lying to us. Basically, yeah, yeah. You're lying to us and we can't work with that. You know, and an MRO could, could tell you more than I do, but I know they will also do splits. So they'll do, you know, they'll split the sample, what their test, their sample in half yeah. and do one in one so that they can be assured, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that that this was a positive. As we get to wrapping up here, I, I, I just, the, the, my overwhelming feeling is that where we are right now for HR people listening is that things are are harder, more complicated than they were, say, 30 years ago. That and, and part of it is because the lines aren't so black and white, right? That we now, as you say, we have to we have to run the organization, but now we have to run it with empathy. We can't there there will just we're not just going to terminate with cause. We're running with empathy. We have to navigate the whole employee in their recovery. And I don't say that as it's as if it's some sort of begrudging obligation. I think it's it, it's great that we consider our employees entire lives and uh, as they integrate with our organizations. But I think that makes things more complicated in this substance abuse scenario. So can I just get your reflections on how you would guide HR pros in terms of training and up-leveling the organization so that managers are better equipped to handle this sort of stuff? Lori, do you want to go first? Well, first, I would have a really good policy that you believe in. So do we test? Why do we test? And how does that process work? If you are suspected of being impaired, 
this is what happens. This is what we do. Um, and if you ultimately test positive, these are the resources or, and this is, this is how we do it. We do one, a last chance agreement. Um, we have many resources through EAP and your health insurance. And, you know, our, our, our hope is that we can get you on the road to recovery. The other thing is to have a plan. So make sure internally, even if it's on third shift, we have somebody who showed up to work and they're, you know, they're clearly intoxicated. What do we do? Send them for testing, make sure that they don't drive for testing. You know, what is the process? And and the third is training, making sure employees understand what your drug alcohol policy is, what the resources are available to them to help them. through their EAPP, through the health insurance. You could have, you know, posters to help people understand, you know, how opioids work, when to take them, don't take them. Um, And also, you know, training managers. How do I handle this if I'm in this situation so that they're comfortable and they don't either ignore it or um, handle it incorrectly? Because that would be our fault if we haven't trained them. And Laurie touched on all the major points I think I'd want to touch on. I mean, you'd want to make sure that someone in HR, the company, either knew the law or had had some resource handy at an outside law firm. They used an employer trade association like us or somebody like that so that they had a quick resource. The other thing I would always suggest is that companies should check their EAP, call them. HR should call them and say, what does it, what happens if I call with something like this? So they can speak with authority and say to the employees, Here's the resources they're going to provide you. Here's the um, benefits you'll get from this. Sometimes EAPs are just an 800 number, and they kind of send you down a rabbit hole and don't offer the services you might want. Other times, they're fantastic, and most of the time, they are. But you want to check out to make sure any service you're willing to provide meets that criteria. And if you're noticing a pattern of you know drug and alcohol issues in the workplace, you may want to, and you don't have an EAP or anything like it, you want to start talking to people about what's a good EAP. You know, is there a good employee assistance program we can rely upon? I think that's a major issue. I think sitting down with um, employees regularly to make sure they're aware that they have resources with the company is helpful. You know, there are benefits under state law, if there are, under federal law, if there are, that, you know, people should not feel they're alone. I mean, because you're right, companies sort of dance with this delicate issue. We're not going to become your parent, but at the same time, we we recognize that you may be struggling. So we don't want you to feel isolated and alone and lost out there. And it's a real challenge for companies to to kind of walk that fine line between what's, you know, how deeply involved should they get in people in their employees' lives. Complicated issue. I've got lots of links to all of the associated acts that we have talked about, the ADA and Family Medical Leave Act and National Labor Relations Act. I've got all the acts are in the show notes. Uh, Also, I I think for this uh, in particular, swipe up in the show notes to find the AIM HR helpline. AIM members reach out to the HR helpline with questions. Phone numbers in there. It is, in fact, an 800 number away, 800-470-6277 or helpline at aimnet.org. You might might get Tom himself. And I don't know if he sends autographs, um, but we have uh, lots of other resources. Anything else specifically that you two would like to uh, make sure that I include in the notes for folks? 
Well, there is uh, a website called findtreatment.gov, and that is available to employers through the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. There's a lot of resources, posters, information for employers. So when you're sitting across from an employee who is who is having difficulties and is ready for treatment, um, this might be a great website for you to go to to put in some information and uh, um, give some options for to the employee. Um, also, Perfect. on the EAP side and on the health insurance side, proactively, what resources can they provide your workplace in terms of training, education uh, related to this particular topic? You know, use your vendors. You're paying them. Get the most out of them would be my recommendation. And your workers' comp carrier may be a help in that regard, too. Some of them have very active loss control efforts. Others don't, but that's okay. You know, but you might want to reach out to them. Same thing Laurie said, you're paying for it already. Make use of it. Ask them in what services they provide. Thank you both very much for uh, illuminating this complicated issue. It's hard. It, it's hard for everybody. Uh, it is a, a whole organization uh, issue. And I think one of the things that mo- is, stands out to me is that doing good by the employee is a public good at this point in this country. Mm. It is a public good. You're yeah. doing the right thing. Yes. Uh, so there we have it. Thank you so much, Lori Burgoyne, Tom Jones. Always great to have you on this show. Thanks, thank Pete. You. And thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to this show. We appreciate your time and your attention. Find those links and listen to the show at amhrsolutions.com, or you can listen to the show right there on the website or in anywhere great podcasts are served. Until next week, on behalf of Lori Burgoyne and Tom Jones, I'm Pete Wright. And we'll see you right here on Human Solutions simplifying HR for people who love HR.